Welcome to Eurocron, a podcast about a wide variety of topics, including people, restaurants, travel, or wherever we can find a good story. And in some cases, maybe even create one. So let's get right to our next story. I've been really looking forward to speaking to my next guest on Eurocron. Dr. Paven Grover is a Houston movie maker as well as a spinal surgeon. Dr. Grover's fifth film released June 9th called 97 Minutes stars Alec Baldwin, Jonathan Reese Myers, my Anna Byrne, and of course, Dr. Paven Grover. Dr. Grover, welcome to Eurocron. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I've seen the movie. Absolutely loved it. Great action, suspense, storyline was awesome. The acting, very intense. So you're a surgeon and a filmmaker. That's certainly a unique combination, one I haven't heard of before. So <laughs> where is a good place to start your extraordinary story, Dr. Grover? Well, I guess, you know, the uh, a good place to start probably would be, you know, I was born in India, came here when I was about six years old. And, you know, it just, it was as all, you also had an interest in that. So, you know, going to the movie theater, and it was this really kind of escapism, you know, the dark theater and experiencing these kind of emotions. So I was always attracted to film. And um, so I, you know, Bollywood, I'm from India, like I said, that's what India is known for, what people dancing around trees and running in the rain. So when I was six, you know, I had made up my mind that I wanted to be an actress. So I told my mom that I want to run around trees for a living, you know, and, and dance in the rain. And, and, and uh, you know, so she, you know, said, uh, hell no. <laughs> I bet. And, you know, you have to be a, a doctor first. And, and I actually, you know, over the years, I, I really had a passion for medicine because I had, um, I had some family members. Actually, my, my brother had passed, my two brothers had passed away. So, I had saw medicine from the other side is what patients go through, you know, in terms of just we're hanging on the doctor's words because hope, no hope would be determined by every kind of, you know, even like body language. And so experiencing what patients go through, what families go through, I think is part made me a better doctor. But, you know, part of my drive in medicine is is really through my experiences in dealing with with uh, illness in my family, and uh, so I love medicine. I know I'm still have extreme passion for it. So I'm not like a doctor trying to do something else. You know, I enjoy medicine. I love taking care of patients, and my hobby is is films, creative stuff. So I'm lucky in the sense that I get to do both. Yeah, and you in in films you've served in several roles um producing directing writing acting what what do you favor the most out of all those roles in filmmaking out of all those roles what i you know and and 97 is a good example because the the whole when you have a vision you you write it in a script and but you know to ensure that vision is is intact you know you kind of have to be involved in all aspects of it right so and that and I do love every aspect of it so to to get that final product takes a lot of work a lot of you know determination to make a film is is very very difficult but so to what I enjoy is the writing right 
I do like the acting because if you're going to make a film, it's going to be fun being on set and, and uh, doing that. But really, the film is also made after the film is shot. You know, the, the sound, for example, is the most important thing that people don't realize. And especially in this film, the sound design took, you know, a big effort, but we wanted to create a visceral experience for the audience being on a plane. And so the, the editing, you know, is so important. I love doing that. The, the music, the sound design at the end, then you do the color timing. I learned all of that in my first film, actually having done a film, the one we did with Hopper. So, so each part of it is great because I make sure that the vision that I had is intact because otherwise it, it doesn't matter. If you have just a script, it can, it can be edited wrong and all sorts of things. So I enjoy getting my vision on screen and no matter what happens with it, as long as I made the movie that I wanted to make. And that's not, that's not easy. A lot of times when somebody will write a script, it can be rewritten, you know, editing could be bad. It's so many things that can fall along the way it becomes very frustrating, so. Yeah. How did you get your start? You, you, you got uh, an interest in making movies. How did you get your start? You, you mentioned Hopper was your first film. That's a pretty <laughs> good start. Well, you know what, when, uh, so I was in medical school, I was doing some, you know, like residency and all that stuff. <clears throat> and I was actually, it was kind of, I didn't have any connections in the film industry. And, you know, we weren't in Bollywood, so there was no, you know, I had no Bollywood connections. Um, and so I taught myself how to write. And you can learn so much these days. That's what's really amazing about the culture we live in. I mean, the, the stuff that you can see on YouTube, right? And, and is resources we didn't have when I was growing up. So you can kind of teach yourself and learn and try to get better. So I taught myself how to write. And then I wrote a script. And then breaking in was still kind of impossible. So I wrote a script tailored for Dennis Hopper, right? So my strategy that's been successful, even now with Hopper, is I wrote like lead roles that a A-list actor would want to play. And then once, like I sent the script to Hopper through a casting director that I'd hired, he loved the script. And the moment he said yes, everything fell in place. So once you have the actor, the distribution, the money comes in, other actors jump on board to play, opportunity to play with Hopper. So, you know, within a very short time, once we got Hopper, you know, we were in New Mexico. We shot this movie, Unspeakable, in 30 days, 28 days, actually. And... I got to act in it, you know, play the lead, which was a lot of fun, and Dennis was great. And then afterwards, so we didn't have distribution when we, you know, made the film. It was the first film. But I got very lucky. MGM, uh, we sold it to MGM for the domestic distribution and 20th Century Fox for the foreign. So we, we lucked out first time out. But that was my training film because I learned how to edit, how to do music, how to do sound. So, you know, it, it took a year for post-production, but... That that's that was my film school. Not a bad start. Not and, a bad start. You're you're being very humble because you won an award for this film. Yeah, but yeah, still, I just feel <laughs> it still it was my first training film. So you know yeah. the the this is you can always get better, and that's how you get better because you want to strive. So every project is really a learning experience to to take you you know to to try to get better. And as long as you're trying to get better, and that's what art is, is yeah. improving it. So, you know, I look back, and now obviously 
having more experience, I can see mistakes. I can see, okay, well, this could have been better and all that stuff. But I learned from that, and you incorporate it into the next project. And that's the only way that you you get better at anything. It's like medical school. You know, you, you study, you learn, you get better, and then you learn from mistakes. You, you just keep growing. So I read a quote somewhere which kind of always stuck with me. It says, how you do anything is how you will do everything. Right, so mm-hmm. whatever you do, you've got to throw your full passion in it. Uh, you can't do anything halfway. So if you're going to do medicine, you want to strive to be the best and take care of patients. And if you're doing a hobby like films, it's the same thing. So you know that that's. I think it's a really good quote. Yeah, that's. I like that. That would resonate with uh, me as well. Mm-hmm. What was it like? after writing that movie to hear Dennis Hopper speak your lines? It was amazing. And it was amazing because I heard his voice when I wrote it. And he was the nicest, coolest cat that you would ever, ever meet in person, right? And he was so supportive. He was actually like a father figure to me on the set because this was my my first film. And we really developed a good relationship afterwards. Sorry, after I finished the film, I actually went to his house in uh, Venice Beach in California. And, you know, I had him look at the first cut of the film, and, you know, he gave me directing advice, right? So now you pinch yourself, okay, I'm getting directing advice from the director (laughs) who did, uh, you know, what was that movie that he won the Oscar for? Easy Rider. Easy Rider, right? And, And it was funny because I was in his house, he's watching the film, he's laughing at his own character, Right. Really? <laughs> so I'm hearing him laugh on screen. He's laughing in person. I said, "This is awesome." And then he was showing me he had all these like from from uh, James Dean. That was the first film that he did. So he had like all this these you know mementos from from uh, James Dean and stuff. So it was he was like he, he was it was really sad when he passed away. But you know he yeah. he was fantastic yeah. uh, to work with, and it was pretty amazing. Like you said, you write something and you see an actor like that speak your line so it, but to be sitting in his house watching him watch easy rider and <laughs> laughing at his i mean that no he was laughing s- at our film oh uh, because he was helped giving me editing advice oh okay right so okay. so so the that was that's why he's laughing at his role yeah <laughs> you know because he's laughing on screen that he really enjoyed that so it was just it was a little surreal but like he he actually sat down and gave me really good advice where to make some cuts, where some things needed to be. And so, you know, that was just invaluable, but he was, he was amazing. Yeah, and that's right. He was in, uh, his first film was Rebel, Rebel Without, Without a Cause. Yeah. Did he talk about working with James Dean? Yes, so in his house, he had paraphernalia from that movie. And uh, so he went through, you know, the, he was also in, I think, the second James Dean movie. But, you know, but he's been around for a long time. He's done some remarkable work. So it was, it was fun as he told me those inside stories of dealing with James and Dean and all that stuff. So it, it was quite a, a very lucky experience, I would say, the first yeah, time Yeah, I mean, because just a, a short time before that, you're writing a script with him in mind, and now you're sitting in his house watching movies with him. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's an incredible story. Well, that's a good start, certainly. Um, so talk about 97 Minutes. What was the writing process like for you for this film? So when I was writing this, I was basically trying to solve a puzzle, right? The puzzle was, how can I create a film that looks like like $100 million or, or 
and, and be shot for under 10 million, right? So that was a kind of the practical consideration of you know, getting a film made is trying to limit the sets, right? Like a contained environment which you can shoot on two sets. So I looked at Air Force One mm-hmm. as a template. And if you look at that movie, it's a Harrison Ford film where he's like the president. You know, that most of the scene is on the plane and then the other set of is in the White House in the Situation Room. So there's basically two sets. The rest is CGI, right? right? So that was my template. So that was the whole goal is how can I create a summer blockbuster film but on a budget for under $10 million. And then you have I put the whole situation on an airplane because as we, you and I have talked before, that's such an anxiety-ridden situation. You're in this box. You're in the sky. There's no escape. So there's inherent tension of like an airplane type of film. And then we all have experienced turbulence. So there was a couple of ticks. We'll talk about that later, how I use that. But I wanted to trigger people's experience of, of turbulence. And there was ways to trigger that. And that's, so I wanted this kind of thrill, thrill ride. And that's part of, you know, how this script came about. It, it worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a horrible experience landing, coming back from <laughs> yeah. Las Vegas one time, and I couldn't believe the pilot came on and said that there's a tornado warning in effect for Houston, but we're, we're landing. <laughs> so buckle up and, you know, get back buckle to Buckle up. That's that line uh, from our it? movie. <laughs> <laughs> buckle up. Yep. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're approaching, and the left wing dips down, and the plane was shaking violently, and you could tell the pilot was trying to take off again, and people were screaming and getting sick, and... You know, and I'm so those are tough scenes for me to watch because of that experience, and it was done well. <laughs> and, and well, that that was what I was going for because when you have a life and death experience, and we all have have that shared experience, because once you feel turbulence, it's kind of hardwired into you, right? Yeah. So, so I was trying to find triggers, right, of how I can kind of I want to if you're going to make a thrill ride movie, you want to make it as immersive and put the people on the plane, right? So there's subtle things I did on the editing and on the music and the sound, like the baby crying, and sounds that are basically I'm trying to provoke. And then what I did, though, is I used my medical kind of background, and what I, as I was we're doing the editing, I actually set up test subjects, put all, all the kind of monitors I use in surgery, you know, and, and I hooked them up to these monitors, and then I would do, like, show, show them an edit. And I kept fine-tuning it until I could consistently raise their blood pressure or their heart rate or the, the monitor I was going at the exact time and consistently, right? So, so that's, that's kind of the process I used on that to create a physiological response. That has to be... That, uh, that is so creative to think of that. And because of your medical background, I can see how you could tie the two together. But that's, to me, it seems like that's the first time that was ever used in filmmaking. That, that was, was exciting. Yeah. That <laughs> is really is, cool. You know, pushing the envelope there. And, yeah. and then, a, you know, when you have an independent film, so our budget was under was about $7 million, mm-hmm. which is kind of low budget when you compare to Transformers, which is, you know, $350 million yeah. shooting budget, 250 yeah. marketing. Yeah. Um, and so you have to push the envelope, do something yeah. different, and that's that's kind of the innovative thing I did on this one. And you talked about writing it from the standpoint of the two scenes and the budget in mind, that kind of thing. But what resonated with me and my wife was the storyline. Mm-hmm. It was a really good story, and it tied together just like a good story should at the oh, very you. end. The very you know the protagonist. I mean, we're we're rooting for him and really rooting for him. You know. What 
how did the storyline come about for you? Is it, is it, was there a true life experience somewhere in there that, or, or did it just pop in your head? How did the actual storyline of the film come? Well, you know, when you, when you write, you, you have an idea, you kind of let it fester in your subconscious. And, you know, then, then sometimes the story will write itself once you get the character and everything. And so I, I, couldn't describe what the process is, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, it's not like a formula that you can do. I tell you the one thing that was very helpful to me, and it's lucky as a writer, I get to, like in the first film, get involved in the editing and all those aspects because that's the only way you get better as a writer because you're on the editing side now and you're thinking as an editor. So you're like, okay, you know, Okay, there's too much dialogue. I don't need this much dialogue. And you're starting to put, then you think of pace, think of music. So so it's that whole cumulative experience that I think you just, it just gets better, right? Yeah. So, so when I'm writing now, I'm looking at it from different hats to put it together as opposed to just kind of the writing element. Yeah. So there's one particular scene, and I don't want to give too much up, but it involved your character. And I, I, when I saw it, I, I turned to my wife and I said, I got to ask how they did that because that looks so real. Which one? <laughs> Which was that? Uh, the, the, what happened to your character there in the... Uh, oh, the, the fight scene? Yes. Up. Okay. So, you know, we, we had this fight scene, um, and we were, we were... It's difficult to have a fight scene, right? Right. And uh, especially in a confined in a would, confined space, yeah. and you know this was a, a real airplane, but in a set, so there's sharp corners everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in my first movie, I did all my stunts. I thought I was Jackie Chan. I got beat up pretty well, <laughs> you know. And and so, but I, you know, I wanted to do the, uh, you know, the action scene. You know, Tom Cruise does it, so you know, I can't. Can't wuss out. Yeah, method acting. Yeah, I didn't want to wuss out, right? Yeah. So, so <laughs> Jonathan Rice Myers was, you know, the one that we were fighting with. And Jonathan, he gets, he's method, you know, gets real into it. And sometimes he's punched actors and stuff accidentally, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. they, they were worried about me getting injured, you know, in that circumstance. So they were trying to get a, a stunt double, right? I, I didn't want to do it. I wanted to do it myself, but they couldn't find a stunt double with my hair. <laughs> so, so I can believe that. They tried, right? You got, you got nice hair. You got nice so, hair. Yeah. So, so I got to do the scene because it looked ridiculous. They tried to put all these wigs on, on, on people and stuff. And so we're doing the scene. And like I said, it was, it was you know, we both really got into it. So we're, we're punching, you know, connecting. But... I knew this reputation of Johnson, actually. So when we started, I just punched him first, you know, <laughs> just to, just to let him know that you know I can I can push back. But it it that little friendly punch, right? Right. <laughs> you know, got us both like like really. And he's he's such a professional. I mean, he is on point. It was amazing his whole acting experience. But so so that that whole scene, we got banged up a bit. But you know, we were both ready to go at it and we both kind of so you got pumped the, up our energy and i thought just a little punch on him get, so I get knew in that, the moment get and, in the moment yeah. so he knew that i could punch back so not to punch me <laughs> see i i thought to myself i, I mm-hmm. said that looks so realistic there has to be 
some pretty decent physical contact. Oh yeah, some, yeah, some we, real physical contact. In oh yeah, yeah, no, we banged it so uh, But you know, this this is we had a great experience shooting and all the artists that we had. We were all pushing it. We were all kind of really enthusiastic about the project. So, you know, everyone did a great job. I yeah. mean, I think on the acting side. So, yeah. but Jonathan, he's such a professional. He, you know, like he's, I mean, he's done the Tudors. He won, an, I think, an Emmy for that. He's done Vikings. And um, he's just such a, you know, that amps up your game working with actors like that. Yeah. Speaking of actors, mm-hmm. um, after a two-year hiatus, 97 minutes, uh, is Alec Baldwin's first film since the very unfortunate onset incident. He was excellent, by the way. Um, the late William Hurt was originally cast for Baldwin's role. So, you know, William Hurt was a great actor. He's won two Oscars. Really impressed me when I was a little kid. I saw him in altered states, mm-hmm. right? And so he was originally, now in a film... You have to be very determined and resili- resilient because there's a lot of starts and stop. You get close, things, you know, out of your control, like s- stop a project and you got to restart. So that's just the nature of it. Film is like going to war, or I heard one is where making a film is like laying tracks in a moving train, right? So <laughs> so it's, it's a roller coaster ride. Yeah. And so we had William Hurt signed up for the Hawkins role, which is the Alex role. And he passed away about a year and a half, Brian. So that role opened up. And and I had, you know, envisioned like Alec in that role as well because this movie was like Hunt for Red October, but in the sky. So, mm-hmm. you know, Alec got like became a superstar after Hunt for Red October. So, you know, he was almost perfect. I of course, you know, when we wanted to do him I adjusted the role, but he was really kind of somebody who I you know I envisioned in the role from Hunt for Red October, yeah. and so um, I actually so I had a connection to Alec. But how I got Alec was serendipity at work. Right? So I went to um, the Sundance Film Festival, which I hadn't gone in years. So it was just like kind of on a whim, mm. and there was this really popular sushi restaurant in Sundance, and so I had gone there a little earlier, and you know just kind of introduced myself, and then when I came there, like you know for my dinner appointment. Alec Baldwin was standing in line for like 30 minutes apparently, right? And I walk in and the hostess goes, hey, Dr. Grover, here's your your seat, right? So I just waltz in and I took his seat apparently, right? That was his <laughs> table. So, you know, Alec, he doesn't have any sort of anger management issues at all. He really responded to it calmly. <laughs> so, so that friendly little kind of argument is how I met. Alec. Wow. And I kept the table, by the way. I didn't give up the table. <laughs> Good for you. And, <laughs> but, you know, after that, then, like, actually that weekend, I, I sent him the script, and, you know, he really liked it because it was kind of in his voice. So so he signed on. And the moment then, again, as my experience with Hopper, once he signed on, we had, you know, Jonathan come in. We had, I you know, found a director that I like. We had another director. Couldn't do him. This just the way films go. And... Uh, then the financing came in because once you have the A-list actor, you can do pre-sales and distribution. And that's how films are financed, right? Mm. But to get the A-list actor is hard unless you have the financing in place. Mm. To get the financing in place, you need the actor on board, right? Mm. So it's a bit of this way. It's, it's really very challenging. But So it all came together. And then we were supposed to shoot. 
right after Rust, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Western, everyone knows yeah. that. And yep. then the big accident happened on Rust, mm. you know, with the accidental shooting and mm. things went really chaotic. I think seven projects dropped him at the time. Mm -hmm. And I was under a lot of pressure from my financial backers to replace him because it was, you know, became very controversial. But I never believed in immediately, like, abandoning somebody if they're having a, you know, a rough patch or at their low point. You know, it just didn't, not something that, a person who I am is just immediately abandoned. So I fought back with the financial backers, and we just toughed through it. And, you know, and we shot the whole film in London, you know. And then the war broke out. We were also shooting during COVID. So, like mm-hmm. I said, every it, it's a roller coaster, right, you <laughs> to, had your set to make a movie. Yeah, yeah. in fact, mm-hmm. I'm reading a, a quote from you. Dr. Grover says, there was enormous pressure to replace Baldwin, but I believe in standing by your friends during their lowest times. We face a si- situation head on and push through that's exactly right. So, yeah. you know, the, it was a lot of pressure, especially, I think you know, had the accident, but then the, I think the interview that he did one time with um, Stephanopoulos, mm-hmm. you know, didn't, I thought it was okay on that, but it didn't come across. He got a little bit more backlash after that. Mm-hmm. And so we were really, like I said, the pressure was enormous to, mm-hmm. to stop, but, you know, I refused to do it. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, we just pushed through it mm-hmm. and... Um, made the film so so you meet him in in uh, at sundance and now he's in your your film what was it like working with him did you develop a relationship with him like you did with hopper yes alec alec was really you know when we shot the film he was recovering from this tragedy which which was an accident right and so it was actually for him therapeutic to kind of step away and get back to what he loves. One of the things about Alec I learned is whenever things are a crisis, he turns to his craft. Mm-hmm. And and so I think, and he was great with the the cast. The cast, you know, was it's a bonding experience when you're in a film. It's like going to war. So the your fellow filmmakers are like being in the bunker together, right? So there's, yeah. there's kind of this really deep bond that you develop. And it was a little crazy too because we had paparazzi break in and, wow. you know, try to fight with the, you know, with the with staff trying to get pictures of him and everything like that, but you know, it was it was it was amazing. The first day when he's on the NSA set and he's going through his line and he's telling us about his experience with Anthony Hopkins. So it was really a, that is again the kick again, where he's saying the lines that you wrote and you envisioned, and it's like manifestation. You know, you've imagined it, and it's it's right there. That's a kick. It's 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 really a kick to do you how flexible are you and how often does this happen where uh, an actor will come to you and say you know I I feel my character would say this instead of what's written here you know Alec and and you know Jonathan did this Uh, Alec you know he he did kind of give me feedback and we cut some of his dialogue because he was able to express sometimes so much with little dialogue so you know and as you're interacting with him you know he would come and say you know maybe we could shorten this up and we we had a nice kind of collaborate relationship and I you know he improved the material because he really got into his character and and the best actors do that you know but he was very respectful in in didn't want to you you can't change the script too much because every piece falls together so his was more of 
you know, like like in certain sections, he could convey what I wanted to convey through through his look or through his emotion, and then wouldn't need that dialogue because everything I wanted, he was able to he, he's portray. So, he's so good at that. He's so good at that. You know, and he's it's amazing because you see him like on talk shows and all these things, and he does all these impressions, yeah. you know, of Al Pacino or De Niro and something like that. Right. So he, he's really a, like a true, true, you know, artist. It's just amazing yeah. watching this and, level and of the, talent. And the jump from doing comedy to yes. serious role is... Just, and he would, he would regale us with... You know, like his stories on the edge with Anthony Hopkins. Love that. Movie. You know, and he was great. But he would he would talk about how Anthony would would direct and how he'd want like the huge background for his character. And then, you know, <laughs> oh, really? So he would say, "I think I'm going to walk over here and have this background." <laughs> and he was like, "What about me? You know, <laughs> I want a big background too." I want so, these Alaskan mountains behind me. Yes, but and so, you all stay over there by yeah, that tree. So he would do his, you know, Anthony Hopkins impersonation. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell you one scene where like he's rehearsing the scene. He's got a big cigar in his mouth, and he's he's like kind of you know reading his lines. So it was just he was he was. I mean the talent there was it was amazing to watch. Yeah. Did you have table reads for the? Did they do no, that? we didn't have table reads. Yeah. You know, there was just not real time. We had to just kind of go, and we shot the film over nineteen days. You know, so you saw the film. I mean, it was it was a uh, you know. We shot a lot I, in a I, short period of time because we had the war breaking out. There was the the worst storm that hit London while we were there, so it was, it was. Uh, we didn't have time for readings and all that kind of stuff. We didn't yeah. need it actually because you know we just had such really good actors that they didn't kind of need to do that anymore. Yeah, I, I read that that you shot it in 19 days, and mm-hmm. I, that's incredible. How, how did you? I mean, you touched on it a little bit, but how did you? pull that off I mean did did you go in thinking okay we got to shoot this in 19 days or did you just keep trimming and trimming and turned out no you know that was in the initial um, planning because what takes a long time on movies is is a lot of sets because you got to move the whole crew to this location right so so we we had at the NSA side so we had this huge green screen Right, and so that technology we use, like the Mandalorian, where they have these big screens, and you can—it's not like your regular green screen because computer patches. So you can create this whole, you know, background uh, on that one set, and that's how I, I planned it with Hopper too. Is I wrote their character to be in kind of as much of one location, as and I would shoot them out first, right? So he was there for us for seven days, so we got a lot. He's actually the lead role i think he's on screen you know 45 minutes just as jonathan rice meyer so he's not like a small role he's kind of the d lead star yeah you know with jonathan opposite him and so because i constructed in one set we were able to shoot you know a lot of him because of not needing changes and then the second set was the airplane we had a great set out there so same kind of thing so that was planned in advance mm-hmm. to to uh, and you know, I, I wrote the script. I move all the passengers in the back, mm-hmm. so we would kind of cut down on on extras and all that stuff. So th- mm-hmm. there was a lot of things with my experience on the first film. When I you know wrote this, I had already all that experience, so I was able to incorporate it at the script stage. And then the rest, you know, I know the CGI looked really good in the film. Yeah, and it was oh, just, yeah. you know, and so Absolutely. we had um, we had um, you know. 
good luck. We had some really good CGI people. And that can go wrong. You can go in these big movies. Sometimes that can go wrong. But we got lucky. Everything, you know, looked good. Where, where were the actual locations? Were they in Hollywood or? The location was in um, Black Hanger Studios. It's a studio out in London, just like a little town. I think it's called okay. Alton. It's a little English village right mm. outside London. Mm-hmm. And so this was a, a, a huge set. They shoot other films there. It was Orville Studios and Black Hanger. But that's where, you know, we shot the, the, the whole film. So was this the... the Scenes on the plane. Then was is that plane used in several movies? Is that a so? Set that you know this this plane actually. Um, we have a plane set in Louisiana. Mm. You know that actually it's a lost airplane. You know the, the TV show Lost. Yeah. When we were that's in Louisiana. Yeah. Well, when we were in pre production on mm. the project with um, William Hurt, mm. so we needed a plane. So you know we, the, the production had bought this plane from Lost because it, you can't shoot on a real plane. It needs to be yeah. like an airplane set. And so that's sitting in London, I mean in Louisiana. We actually did uh, Zoo, that CBS series there. We did oh. a Mark Wahlberg film, Deepwater Horizon, a Nicolas Cage film. Um, what was it called? Left Behind, right? Yep. So we we're going to shoot on that for this film. And then with the circumstances with you know Alec and all that stuff, we had to go shoot it in London and so they actually we hired we rented a plane this huge 767 so on this set we had the 767 on one side and the green screen on the other side that we were doing the NSA stuff so it was all in one one location but it was planned like that yeah yeah so that that cuts down a lot of production time and costs obviously yeah Mm because you go to another location and you, you got you got so much stuff going on. You got caterers and yes. wardrobe, and yeah, just all that stuff. And, yeah. and so, like I said, that's part of the experience of you know having made a couple of films and and knowing where to where to make it simpler. Yeah, and and having that in mind when you're writing it too. So yeah, and it, this was a you know this was a visceral film, an immersive film that we wanted to make. So so the vision started with the way that it's shot. Yeah. Right. So on the plane, it has to be handheld have to follow it to recreate you know like your viewer's eye of being on a on a plane the nsa then takes a little break from that chickiness and that and it's a little bit more smoother shooting so you know all all this was was kind of thought out really like when i'm writing it so as i'm visioning it so you know and that's where being involved in every step of it allows you to get the vision how it's shot how it's edited, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, always little clashes with the creative people on there. But, you know, you know I got the film that I wanted to make, whatever whatever you think of it, but that's the film I wanted to make. It's yeah. mm-hmm. awesome. We'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by Pitney Properties. Pitney Properties provides real estate services to buyers and sellers located in and around the Houston area. Having been raised in Texas, LeBon Pitney is incredibly well-versed in the area's housing market and always manages to find her clients those hidden gems that other agents tend to overlook. LeBon's relentless style and integrity allow her to hold client satisfaction at her highest priority. She works hard to make the entire home buying and selling experience as is productive and enjoyable as possible. 
Whether her clients are first-time buyers or seasoned investors, Lebon works tirelessly to accommodate their needs and exceed their expectations. To learn more about Lebon's real estate services, please don't hesitate to call her today at 713-805-8871. That's 713-805-8871. Or contact Bond at sold at pitneyproperties.com. up with character names are these people you've known from your past do you just like open a book and put your finger on <laughs> what do you you know the um it's it's just part of the process i don't know if there's any special trick to writing names when you're writing a script you want to make it as distinctive as possible mm -hmm. so that you know you can separate out the character so so if you like the names did you, the, yeah. i did like the names yeah <laughs> they're they're so unique that's what mm -hmm. made me wonder is like Kind of like I was thinking about the the storyline. Is this something that actually happened to you or somebody you know in real life, and it just kind of expanded from there? But it's just there are there are films that you know there are screenplays I've written, which is very personal, mm -hmm. and then um, and like I said, but it, it's names have to be distinctive because mm -hmm. when you're reading it on the page or somebody else is reading it, you don't want it to blend together so so in a sense it's a necessity in the script to have distinctive names so you know who the characters are they don't start to yeah yeah so 97 minutes has already been released in 10 major markets talk about the dis distribution of movies and how how you get your film out there these days so you know it's it's a whole new world media world right mm -hmm. years ago like when we did unspeakable for example you would you would have a theatrical release and then there'd be like a window. So you do all your marketing for the theatrical release. Mm -hmm. And then there was like a window of like three, four months before. Remember the days we had DVDs, Blu-rays, blockbusters. All that is just gone, right? right so right. so now, you know, you'll see a lot of films that are released. And then shortly after, they'll be available on demand, right? Because people now consume content however they want to consume it, whether it's on their phone or on their iPad on TV, going into the theater. So so marketing now, I think, is a continuous process because you have the theatrical release, there's the foreign release, then it goes on demand. Like, for example, ours will be coming on um, Hulu in September, and up to that, it's on demand. So there, there's always some venue is going to pop up. So, so it changes your marketing. So it's kind of a... That's why there's such a small window now. Like, mm. it's in the theater, and all of a sudden, it'll be you know, on uh, demand. Our film, actually, I just found this out the other day, which was kind of interesting. So this friend texted me, and he said, our film is number three worldwide and the most pirated film. This has been out a week, right? So, <laughs> oh, so you know, pirated, obviously, it's something called torrent where people are sharing the video, but it's usually an indicator of if your film is catching on or, or is catching up. So we were, Transformers was number one, this worldwide right so mm -hmm. and so we're, we're the third most pirated movie right? I mean obviously that's, that's not good because you know you don't want to encourage people to pirate movies but it's pretty interesting because Transformers had a 200 million dollar marketing budget 
and we had almost none, right, in yeah. terms of the, the, what the distributor put out. So the fact that it's number three, I get a kick out of that, even though, you know, but that's like, like you know, the most pirated movie in a week next to Transformers. <laughs> I thought that was really, really, because like I say, that, that's reflective of the environment, how things are instant yeah. and on multiple formats and people can, you know? Well, piracy is a negative word, but yeah. number three, up against Transformers is not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I love it. I mean, 7 million against 200 million. Yes, and it's yeah. like, you're, you know, if I was a businessman investing, of course, yeah. I'd want the number three. <laughs> yes. Well, you're for the, for the cause. So I just thought it was interesting because the, it's a, it's a reflection of trends, right? So it's like a, like a tracker, how mm. a film is, is because obviously if somebody's sharing it, they're watching it. It's, it's a, uh, I just thought I got a kick out of that. And so we don't want to encourage piracy, but like you said, you know, yeah, it's not bad. Well, yeah. And, and these big high budget films that flop, that just must be an investing nightmare. So, you know, when, um, when a film, let's say Indiana Jones. Right? Yeah. Okay. So that had reshoots, but let's say they have a budget to shoot a $350 million. Then they spend, 200 300 million dollars on marketing the film right so now they're at at um you know six seven hundred when you see the box office numbers the theater owners get half so the the what's coming back to the to the film production is half of that right so indiana jones for example has to make almost a billion dollars to break even right and so you know that's that's a the previous films have not made that much so you know so that's it's a high budget kind of but but the margin is very small yeah. when you're at that that kind of level to and so even if you see a film okay that film made 800 million dollars what a big hit but if it total cost you know like more than 500 which most films cost they've lost money they've lost 100 million dollars and yeah. stuff like that so it's it's a it's it's, so it's always better to make a film look like a hundred million dollars, but that yeah. that was the whole idea. So make it for a smaller budget. Yeah, you know then. Well, we, it's good that you're a doctor. You own your own business. So a lot of people they they don't understand the business side. That they really enjoy what they do and they you know, want to do it for a living, but they don't understand. They first time they look at a P and L statement or something like that, they go, "Oh, look at all this money!" Hey. Like, but no, not really. <laughs> no, Scott, listen, <laughs> listen, doctors are not. You know, business-wise, we are we're not that good at business, right. right? Because you're growing up in residency, you don't really have business school. Yeah. So it's actually not true that doctors coming in with some innate, you know, rents of business. This is school of hard knocks. Yeah. You know, so you you learn, you know, by whatever project. As long as you you take the lessons and you improve on it. Yeah. So it wouldn't say it was an inherent business thing that you know doctors have. It's it's uh, but you know starting your own practice. We weren't taught that in medical school. So that also, you kind of learn business. But, you know, inherently, I don't think it's a, it's something that's taught in medical school. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's mm -hmm. kind of, to my point, you know, at the beginning, you don't. It's, you're, you're working on your craft. And, but eventually, you yes. know, it, it, you become familiar with the business. One. But my point is, to what you said, a lot of people see that revenue coming in from the movie, but they don't really understand the bottom line of business and, yeah. and how much gets filtered through. So uh, with that in mind, uh, A-list actors, um, how, how much are you in tune to, okay, we find out how much an actor gets paid, an A-list actor. 
what what of that becomes residual income after the film is released is it is it different for everybody or is there kind of a standard it's uh, it's different for everybody it depends mm -hmm. on like each actor has certain value right so like uh, alec baldwin it's worth this much in um like the distribution market right mm -hmm. so so a lot of the the salaries the fees are are kind of based on what the value is like the distribution value right so different different actors will get different percentages um tom cruise for example i mean he's you know gets 20 percent of the gross and all that but he's tom cruise yeah. and so it is the higher a list do get more of the residuals on the back end yeah interesting interesting so um you're a filmmaker and a doctor how do you how do you juggle that Time-wise, you know, time-wise, it's 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 actually, you know, sometimes I wonder myself. But <laughs> but you know, the the thing is, when I'm at work doing medicine, I enjoy every bit of it, right? I enjoy taking care of patients, enjoy surgery, so I don't feel I'm stressed out because I'm so very passionate about it, right? Then when I'm not working, so instead of playing golf, right? I'm you know, and like I said, these things take a long time, and having you know, it gives me a certain amount of strength because I can do a film when the timing is right, when the actor is right. I'm not, I'm not going in that up and down world of Hollywood, which is actually very anxiety provoking because actors can do a film. They might not get another film project. Same with directors. So it's a very unstable kind of thing that, that then sometimes will interfere with your enjoyment of it because so much is dependent on it. So which I don't have to worry about that which is strength for me, right? So when I'm on weekends, instead of playing golf, I'm doing you know, writing or something creative. And that I enjoy really, you know, editing and all that stuff. So I, I'm lucky because I'm happy at work, happy in my job. And so I don't feel like, oh my gosh, I gotta do editing or I gotta go write or I gotta go to work. If you enjoy what you do, it's not really work. Right. It right. really isn't, you know? So I don't feel like I'm, pushing both ends or something like that. And films take such a long time, so it's not like you're going in and out of town or anything like that. It's it's a, you know, something you do on as a hobby. Yeah. Do you do you have any other outside interests? Do you like going to movies? Yes, I love going to movies. Yeah. And the theater and stuff and and yeah, so I actually I, I'm I'm taking care of my nephew. He's fourteen now. Mm -hmm. Right. He was he was actually my my youngest brother had passed away four years ago, mm. and he was 10 at the time, right? Mm. So so four years ago, like, my father had died too, and so I kind of stepped away from my normal social life, and the last four years I've been, I adopted him, I'm basically, you know, raising him. Yeah. So it's been wonderful the last four years, yeah. raising him, so when I'm not doing films, I'm, you know, taking care of him, which is a joy, and I actually, took him with me for the shooting in, uh, in London. And big mistake, probably, because at 13, he's hanging out on a movie set, right? He's being shot, he's in all the paparazzi shots, because he's there <laughs> next to Alec, they're breaking in. He's got his shades, you know, he's like real cool. And he was, he was 14, but he's really tall, he's taller yeah. than me, he's very annoying, because he, he reminds me every, you know, how tall he is, but, so he's hanging on a movie set, 
He's being shot by paparazzi. He's being treated like gold because he's a writer, producer, you know, like relative, and, and he's being taken around in limos. So, so when he came back, he goes, you know, I've decided I want to be an actor, right? And I'm like, hell no. <laughs> you got to get an education. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I've turned into my mother. Oh, well, I was going to say, <laughs> where have you heard that before? Yeah, so it's like, oh, my gosh, right? And uh, so it's, uh, it's really... So like it's a full circle, yeah. right? So now, I, now I've turned into my mother. So I'm like, get an education first, and then we'll talk. Well, that must have been a thrill for him. To Alec actually him. thought, so he's, you know, he's not an ordinary 14-year-old. I mean, he's really handsome. He's tall. And so he's got this kind of swag. I don't know where he gets that from. But <laughs> <laughs> I probably spent too much time with him. And so in the on set, you know, like he's doing his cool pose, you know, and Alec's like looking at him and he said, is this your bodyguard? He <laughs> was my bodyguard. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, so, uh, talking about your your medical career a little bit, um, you uh, talk about the angina cure that you uh, invented. I guess is yeah, so. Well, actually, so uh, years ago, um, we did this study with the FDA in the cardiology department, and we were doing this kind of, you know, innovative thing. We, we do things in spinal surgery, in, in, interventional with, with implants of uh, what's called like, like pacemakers, but like stimulators that work on pain issues, but they also work on increasing blood flow. So we did this landmark study with the FDA where we had patients who had severe chest pain, angina, but they had already failed bypass. They were failed, and the first lady we did, she couldn't go from the kitchen to the bedroom without severe pain. So we did this study where we implanted this stimulator in their spine, hooked up to a little battery which was implanted underneath, and in those first patients we were able to reverse the blood flow to the heart, and a lot of the, the, the first test patients we did they were able to get off their medications and so because this was physically improving the circulation in their heart so that's what that particular study was about and you know over the years like I said it's it's you always want to be innovative and you know have new technology to be able to do your craft and that was yeah that was an exciting study with had some really good results yeah What what a wonderful invention then you, uh, you had some dealings with uh, Doctor Kevorkian <laughs> on the uh, subject of, of suicide, where of course he was well known for assisting suicides for uh, patients suffering pain. But you had a, a different approach. So I actually, in that whole, a lot of people might not remember, mm-hmm. Doctor Kevorkian was a big advocate of assisted suicide, mm-hmm. um, but his was. You know, not necessarily for patients who are at the end of life. He was felt strongly that if the patient wanted it, a doctor is obligated to end their life. So he was even at the point where, if you know, teenager having depression, he was okay with with doing the assisted suicide, right? And I wasn't really making a stand about assisted suicide, but there was a lot of patients that he was seeing who actually had pain issues or there there were things and they hadn't really gone through because it was back then there was not much knowledge about interventional spine all that stuff it was kind of new so I had actually a patient who was on the way to see him he had cancer he had such severe like 
you know, metastases all over his body that he couldn't even tolerate the weight of sheets. And so he is, he had, on the way to go see Dr. Kaborkian, before he's left, his wife brought me, brought him to me. And so we found like a, a way to stop his pain, to enjoy his quality of life. And he was actually then, you know, there was a patient that Dr. Kaborkian challenged any doctor to come and help. Otherwise, he would assist the suicide. So I reached out trying to to help that patient. Anyway, we, we got into this huge you know, media battle, and I actually debated his lawyer on Larry King Live for people who know that show long ago. And yeah, so, absolutely. so, you know, it was, it was but my, my point in that was there are options for patients. And so patients should just know about those options and a chance to improve their life before taking such a final step. Yeah, wow. He's lucky he met you, <laughs> patient, yeah. So film projects, what's swirling around in your head right now? What, uh, what could we look for in the future? Well, so the next project, is, it's, it's a science fiction reimagining of The Wizard of Oz, right? So it's actually created a, a new IP franchise, right? Kind of what Disney did to a certain extent. So Walt Disney, he took a public domain property, which was Mickey Mouse, mm-hmm. and he put his own spin on it and created a whole new kind of what's called IP or intellectual project. So I... I, I, I used Frank Baum's Wizard of Oz, you know, then, which is public domain. So I took that and I put my own kind of modern science fiction reimagining twist on that story. And so right now we have a, a TV series that I've written for it where, you know, we're trying, it's going to be like a new franchise. So we have like feature films, anime series versions. And so that's, that's right now, this is what I'm working on. Next, so that'll be the next project. Right now, we're putting all the the pieces together, and so, but it's it's already written, and it's a whole different. You know, it's actually looking at combining my Eastern background with the nature of life and the universe, and my scientific background because a part of the core of what we're exploring is the whole concept of quantum physics and how this mind-blowing concept. But you know, people don't know that. The these quantum physics that implies that our consciousness has an interaction with the expression of reality. Right, it's a mind blowing concept. So, so that's what this is kind of a fusion of my Eastern background and you know Eastern spirituality and my science background, kind of combining the two. And you know, it, it's based on story and character, but it's like a whole new twist on an IP that is a global brand, but we're doing a whole new spin on it. Sounds interesting. When can we expect to see that? We'll probably go into production, like I said, you know, this year, yeah. and then probably next year we'll yeah. It'll launch. Yeah. Well, Dr. Grover, it's been uh, it's a, an amazing conversation. Uh, I had a lot of fun. No, I had a lot of fun, too, Scott. I really appreciate you inviting yeah. me. Yeah, and that, that, uh, ple- the pleasure is all mine. It was, it was a great film. Of course, the film is called... 97 minutes we'll post a lot of links and pictures and uh, so i'm curious did you were you tense i mean like was was when you were watching it you said did, did we trigger any of that turbulence oh mm-hmm. yeah definitely yeah. like i said i had that personal experience and so i'm, I'm a yeah. little queasy around anytime a plane starts to take a dive uh, my, yeah. my, I feel my stomach go up in my throat a little bit. So this was a fun thrill ride. That's what we were going for. It, it was. And like I said, I, I, or maybe I did or didn't say it. I, I 
didn't go to the restroom, which is very <laughs> unusual for me. That's a good sign. That's a good sign. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think we'll make the airplane, you know, in, in-flight movie on the airplane. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, you know, just like you don't want to show Jaws at the beach and things like that. Although so. <laughs> I did see the Denzel Washington movie, Flight, you know, where he's yeah. like, on a, you know, a drug addict and all that stuff. He goes so upside I, down. Yeah, I saw that on a plane. So uh, we're watching on a plane. Everyone starts looking at the pilot. <laughs> so, hmm, this kid's <laughs> acting a little strange there. You know, <laughs> so, probably not a good movie to play on an airplane. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting one to show on a plane. But uh, certainly, um, so uh, we come to what we call our legacy question on Yercron. And uh, that is, in 50 years, is, if someone is listening to this recording, what do you want them to know or perhaps remember about you, Dr. Grover? I think what, <clears throat> what I would want them to remember is that, you know, if you constantly strive to get better, that in itself is the joy in life, right? So try to be the best version of yourself. Try to push and, and once you're in that growth phase and always trying to, then life is, is, you can accomplish your dreams. You can, you know, and you just have to be persistent and keep doing it regardless of the obstacles. So it's the one takeaway is, you know, whatever dream that you have, you have to be persistent at it. You have to push no matter how many setbacks you have. And so, and you try to get better in whatever you do, whether it's medicine, whether it's films or, or whatever it is, I, I think that's the that would be the message I'd want to convey. Yeah, that's a good one. I think as a society too, we're uh, at least, especially here in the United States, we're an impatient society. Yes, and I think utilizing patience in that process is probably probably good too. But uh, yeah, definitely good words to live by. Well, thank you again for for being on your cron and uh, wish you all the best uh, with 97 minutes and all your future film endeavors and medical endeavors. And uh, I appreciate it, Scott. It was very nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well.